I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, the rise and fall of WeWork. Welcome, and thank you for coming. It's a Sunday afternoon in September 2019, and Adam Newman is in a pickle. He's standing in an empty lobby at the headquarters of the company he runs, WeWork. Adam co-founded WeWork back in 2010. At the time, it was a side hustle, a plan B in case his main gig, making baby clothes with built-in knee pads, didn't work out. But in the nine years since, WeWork has gone from side hustle to juggernaut. It brought co-working into the mainstream and reaped the rewards. Half a million members, locations in more than 120 countries, and a valuation of $47 billion. Now, Adam is trying to take the company public. Last month, WeWork filed a prospectus with the SEC. For the first time, the most valuable startup in the country showed the world its balance sheet, and the world was not impressed. The prospectus is, as one analyst put it, a masterpiece of obfuscation. It claims that the company's mission is to, quote, elevate the world's consciousness and unlock the energy of we. But once you hack away at the layers of jargon, you're left with a company that is hemorrhaging cash faster than a victim in a slasher film. In the six months leading up to the IPO, WeWork lost nearly one and a half billion dollars. And then there's the hypocrisy. For a company that's supposed to be all about we, the prospectus is really all about Adam. He's been given 20 to 1 voting control. He trademarked the word we and is charging the company $6 million to use it. He put his wife in charge of naming his successor. The negative publicity is mounting and WeWork's $47 billion valuation is in free fall. WeWork has been, I mean, basically a major debacle. If they were gonna bring it public for 40 billion, they can't even get 10 billion now. Will you stop the WeWork deal? Please, let's stop WeWork. But Adam has no interest in stopping. He can't. WeWork's losses are so great, it needs an injection of capital now. The way he sees it, the IPO is his only option, which is why he's standing here on a Sunday afternoon, dressed in a tailored Navy suit and a crisp white shirt, his long wavy hair tucked neatly behind his ears. Mikey, is there any reason you want the teleprompter behind the camera so I'm looking straight at you or you don't care? Because my eyes are a little shooting to the right. That's okay. Adam is recording a video for WeWork's Roadshow. It's a critical part of the IPO process where company leaders make their pitch to potential investors. The other execs at WeWork filmed their segments weeks ago, but not Adam. He missed four film shoots, which cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars and ran down the clock. Now he's almost out of time. The Roadshow video has to go out tomorrow morning. Luckily, this sort of thing is a cakewalk for Adam. Tell the story of WeWork, share the mission, talk up the financials. He's probably given versions of this presentation more times than he can count. And being the master salesman that he is, it usually ends with someone cutting him a big fat check. Today, though, something is off. Real estate is going through a fundamental shift from a fixed cost per seat commodity to an experiential differentiated, it's a mouthful, from a fixed cost per seat commodity to a must-have experiential. I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. He tries to shake it off. He cracks jokes, leans on one leg, lifts the other, and... <laughs> Sorry. 
The universe had to release it. But the universe can't seem to help him release his lines. From a fixed cost per seat, uh, we'll clean it up. I think we're great, and I think we're preparing for the roadshow right now. Let's hope my hair is good. This is harder than 20-foot waves. You know why? Because I control the 20-foot waves. He has no control now. The man who once needed just 12 minutes to talk an investor into giving him $4 billion is now taking hours to read a few cue cards. Many of the bankers and executives who gathered to watch what was supposed to be Adam's crowning performance have gotten bored and gone home. Around 11 o'clock, when the film crew finally has what it needs, Adam turns to the few remaining onlookers and assures them that he's ready for the roadshow. You have to wonder, though, if the person he's really trying to assure is himself. The next morning, executives from J.P. Morgan, the firm putting together WeWork's IPO, tell Adam that a rambling, manic, borderline incoherent video cannot possibly douse the dumpster fire that is WeWork's IPO. WeWork is to file a request to withdraw its IPO prospectus. It is official. WeWork is pulling the plug on its IPO. The shared office-based provider is looking for more time to calm investor doubts about its dropping valuation, governance problems, and financials. Adam tries desperately to right the ship. He apologizes to investors, tells his staff that he's been humbled. With enough contrition, it looks like maybe, just maybe, he can cling to control of the company, embarrassed, diminished, but still in charge. Then comes a story in the Wall Street Journal. Adam Newman, it begins, was flying high, literally. It goes on to describe Adam's penchant for smoking pot on WeWork's private jet, details the company's hard party in corporate culture, and most damningly exposes Adam's flagrant acts of self-dealing. Almost as soon as it's published, it detonates any hope Adam may have had of staying in charge. WeWork's Adam Newman is stepping down as CEO. Oh, a huge change for the company that just a few weeks ago looked like it could set the uh, stage for one of the hottest IPOs of the year. That Wall Street Journal story, the one that ended Adam's reign, was written by a reporter named Elliot Brown, with help from another reporter named Maureen Farrell. The two spent years charting WeWork's rise and fall in real time. Now they've expanded their meticulous reporting into a hilarious, infuriating, unputdownable book called The Cult of We, WeWork, Adam Newman, and the Great Startup Delusion. Our mission at the Next Big Idea Club has been, from day one, to connect readers and writers in powerful new ways. One of the ways we like to do this is to host online book launch events. We get authors of the hottest new books to talk with other authors in our community. And you know what? More often than not, the conversations are scintillating. Today, we're bringing you one of those conversations, in this case, between Elliot, Maureen, and New York Times tech reporter, Mike Isaac. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. So, folks, I'm Rufus Griscom. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Next Big Idea Club, and I'm pleased to welcome you to our virtual book launch party for The Cult of We, We Work, and The Great Startup Delusion. In the spirit of a book launch party, I have here 
an inexpensive glass of rosé. I hope other people <laughs> do too. Um, our mission at the Next Big Idea Club is to connect readers and writers in powerful new ways. And this new series of conversations is one of them that we're hosting about brand new books. And we have, this is a really an exciting one for me. We have here today, the celebrated authors of The Cult of We, Elliot Brown and Maureen Farrell. Elliot Brown is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal where he covers startups and venture capital. Maureen Farrell is also a Wall Street Journal reporter covering IPOs and capital markets. In conversation with Elliot and Maureen, we have Mike Isaac. Mike is a technology correspondent at the New York Times and the author of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, which was named one of the best books of the year by NPR, Fortune, and Bloomberg. As many of you all know, the rise and fall of WeWork has already spawned books, podcasts, a documentary. But my gut tells me that Elliot and Maureen's book, The Cult of We, will endure as the definitive story of how we work unraveled. It's meticulously reported. It provides a vivid portrait of Adam Newman, WeWork's charismatic and more than a little bit unhinged CEO. It skewers the venture capitalists and Wall Street execs who fall under his spell. It's a hell of a good story. So good that a reviewer in the New York Times described guzzling it the way Adam Newman might gulp bottled water after smoking so much pot on a private jet that flight attendants would reach for their air masks. Apparently, this is a true story. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We were just chatting before we started about how I think there's something primal in our vicarious enjoyment of the ascent of public figures. And then when they spiral into megalomania in some occasions, and we enjoy every bit as much, they're dramatic, crashing down to earth. Boy, is this a hell of a story. I look forward to learning more about it. So welcome, Elliot, Maureen, and Mike. Thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me as, and I feel very honored to get to interview uh, Elliot and Maureen here. I kind of want to start at a high level for folks who might not have read the book yet or folks who are kind of aware of, you know, we work on a general, the general nebulousness of of this being kind of a startup disaster, but also ubiquitous back in the day at some point. Um, but I think for, for you guys, I'm just kind of curious, when you were wrapped up in this sort of drama of this, at what point were you like, this is obviously a book, there's much more here than than what I can fit into the journal on A1 every day or whatever. While I was cursing you from afar, getting these really amazing, <laughs> amazing scoops day after day. I'll just say when I thought of it, the downfall happened so precipitously in September 2019. And it was, I mean, at some point there, it would be like mid-morning my time in New York. And I would have talked to Elliot like multiple times already from San Francisco. And it was like round the clock and it just we were sort of breathlessly covering it. We couldn't believe every development. But around the time, basically, that we were hearing and reporting on Adam about to step down and get Adam Newman, the CEO, getting pushed out of his own company, it seemed unfathomable. And we sort of had a conversation over the weekend and said, oh, maybe this could be a book. Maybe we would want to do it together. We put together a paragraph or two. And um, the process came together so quickly that that paragraph or two kind of became our book proposal, which was kind of surreal. <laughs> Elliot, That's awesome. You could say a little more. <laughs> y- yes, it was great to not have to write a proposal. Um, yeah, I think- Cursing I, you again right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it had sort of like popped into my head a fair amount earlier in, in the year because I, you know, had been working on this big profile that would end up running and sort of hastening the, the exit slash causing the, the timing of the exit. So I, I figured there would be something big that would happen with WeWork around the IPO. 
and was planning to, you know, think about it and turn my attention to that after whatever happened with the IPO happened. But then, yeah, like Maureen said, she just kind of called me, I guess, yeah, right before the weekend. And then uh, it, it was the the day of Adam resigning that we actually kind of, we had started talking a few days earlier and then mm. with our great editor at Crown, um, you know, kind of originally heard from them in terms of a formal offer on um, the day Adam resigned. That's amazing. I think in book publishing world, the success of the sale is usually measured on the length or lack of length of your pitch. So you guys probably <laughs> nailed it. That's amazing. If you sell on an email, then you win, basically. Um, so yeah, let's let's rewind a little bit. I think there's this period which seems so crazy now and really far away now, but WeWork was like one of the most celebrated unicorns of its time, right? Like I, I remember just doing all of these or working with uh, the Times or the Journal or or Bloomberg would work on these sort of graphics showing the craziness of the sort of froth uh, and all these graphs with lines going up and to the right, basically celebrating not necessarily the growth, but the valuations of these companies soaring, right? I think at one point, tell me if I'm wrong, but WeWork became the most valuable startup in the in the country, sorry, in the U.S. at yeah. least? Yeah, yeah, after Uber IPO. Can you just tell me, like, how we got to that point? Like, how did we sort of see that and be like, all right, I believe that. I believe that what essentially felt like a real estate company is worth tens of billions of dollars to the effect that that it was. Yeah, well, so it, it was really a kind of gradual thing, like sort of the frog boiling in water. I mean, I, w like from the beginning, basically, when I first started covering them as a real estate reporter, which was in 2014-ish, um, that was the thing that was always mystifying. It was like, how is this valued so high? And then every year, you know, we'd write stories about like, well, it looks like a real estate company and, and, uh, but their, their valuation is like a software company. And, and that's a really important thing because that's how you raise money and that's how you grow. And it's not just this number on a paper, but if you're valued, you know, at a trillion dollars, you can just sell a little chunk of your company for a billion dollars and then suddenly grow. And so that's what we were doing year over year. And, like every year they would just, you know, without fail, raise more money at a higher valuation. And I kept thinking like, well, somebody's finally going to see that this is not real. Uh, and then they'd like do it again. <laughs> so you were crying foul from the beginning or can you, can you boast that you were? Cause not all journalists were, I think a lot of folks really bought into the hype. Right? Uh, yeah. Without being too, um, you know, you can arrogant. Take it. Um, you can take it. <laughs> no, no, the, the, the journal was, um, if you look at our record, we, we, we got this one. I mean, like in 20, <laughs> in, in 2014, I think we did a story on how there, there were like eerie parallels to the dot-com boom and a similar company that went bust and, and that had a tech valuation, but it was really a real estate company. In 2017, the headline on the front page was that, you know, WeWorks was a real estate company with Silicon Valley pixie dust, but you know, again, read stories and then the valuation would go up. <laughs> And I'll just say when I joined the story, which was uh, later uh, around 2018, mm. it was sort of funny to come to the table because everyone in the WeWork ecosystem was, especially Adam Newman, the CEO, was obsessed with Elliot. And like, you know, maybe you could talk some sense into him. He's so cynical and he doesn't get it. Oh my God. <laughs> and we learned I'm actually much quite endearing in reality. <laughs> <laughs> Your cynicism is endearing, right? <laughs> 
So yeah, he we and we learned much more of that while reporting the book that he was just like kind of would be fixated because Elliot was the one person sort of crying, like questioning this, and the uh, much of the rest of the media was hailing him as like the next great entrepreneur. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, a lot of this it's just really funny. We can talk about Uber and stuff later, but I'm just it's there's so much of it where it feels similar and then you know there were maybe a few people crying foul on it but there was a fervor and just sort of a cheerleading that kind of saw things going up into the right and it gets everyone gets sort of swept up in that you know yeah i, I just broadly like that's i think one of the things that sort of motivated us to do the book was that like this we work wasn't just we work it, it was the the most extreme example of this kind of craziness going on in silicon valley where everything's about hype and killing it and everything's a tech company no matter even if you're like an ice cream company <laughs> and these genius founders who can do who like or see the future and can execute it so that um that actually gets to my next sort of thing i'm curious about maureen to your point the founder is I think it seems to be crucial in a lot of this. And I guess I want to, and really this book, this book is really feels like a, a founder led sort of story, a founder focused story as sort of um, very character driven. And I, I want you to tell us a little bit about maybe Adam's earlier days before he became the dude on the cover of Forbes and definitely before the dude with the airplane munchie bag or whatever. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what was he earlier on? You know, essentially like how did he come into this? Was he serial entrepreneur? Was this his first big thing? Um, so he was a serial entrepreneur, but they, it was, they were kind of ridiculous. His first companies, uh, he, first of all, he emigrated from Israel. He came in around 2001. He had been in the um, Israeli Navy, and he essentially, his sister was a model in New York. Um, and so he came to live with her. He was very uh, excited just to be around celebrities. And we even, we found an old video of him saying how he met Matt Damon in a bar once <laughs> before he left Israel and was like, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to like have experiences like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. So he came to New York and his first business was this business called Crawlers, um, in which he had this... Uh, epiphany that babies crawl, but their knees must really hurt. So he <laughs> created uh, onesies with built-in knee pads. <laughs> and um, we've heard from people at the time, I mean, he would just go to baby, like to retail fairs and kind of captivate parents with these tales of, uh, you know, what their that their baby would be really happy if they <laughs> bought crawlers. And he was telling <laughs> everyone, everyone he knew even then that this was going to be like the biggest business they've ever seen. That's so he amazing. Did, yeah, did not lack ambition from the very uh, beginning. <laughs> did he have a kid at that point? Did he have children? He or did he not. he just decided to dive into babyland? He dove into babyland. It was just this idea. He dropped out of Baruch College in New York, um, where he's studying entrepreneurship, to pursue this grand idea. And eventually, he just kind of wound it down. And he met his co-founder, Miguel McKelvey who was an architect, and they basically came up with this idea of subdividing real estate. They started it in Brooklyn first, an earlier iteration of it. It was called Green Desk. And then even just from the very beginning, from everything we've heard, his ambitions were so grandiose and large, and it, it worked right away. It was right around the um, financial crisis. There was tons of real estate that was uh, landlords needed to get someone to use because the economy was in trouble. Mm. So it kind of it, it worked uh, immediately, but their landlords in Brooklyn didn't want to scale in a big way. So they 
started again. They went and decided to start WeWork. They left, they took some money out of the business. They sold it back uh, to earlier investors, to the landlords. And WeWork was launched in 2010. Had you kept an eye on them from the beginning, uh, just during your reporting, Elliot? Or was that, when did they come under your radar? I was going back and had an email from Miguel uh, about Green Desk in my when I was working at the New York Observer. Uh, that I, I love I, that. Or, no, I, I passed it on to an intern. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, brutal! <laughs> but no, I, I didn't really know, notice them until 2013 or so when they were kind of expanding faster in in Lower Manhattan. You know, it's funny because like a lot of the to your to your sort of point about your email, a lot of ideas or. VCs tend to tweet emails from like 10 years ago on the IPO day of a company being like, man, look at, look at the foresight I have on this or whatever. <laughs> when I, when I got in a seed round of like, whatever, 20 grand and, and really no one has any idea what's going to work or not work really, in, in, in my humble opinion. But I, I feel like a lot of the times the ideas might be kind of similar or people are kind of floating around this certain sector, but it tends to be the founder that kind of sticks out a lot of the time, you know, and like VCs might sort of look at the founder. So did, did Adam like have that, does he have like a sort of gravitational pull or natural charisma that made that pitch sort of easier? Or was the idea something that clicked with folks or what was it about the whole thing, you know? Yeah. So the first kind of main, you know, standard venture capital tech funding money that he got was one of the best firms out there benchmark that they were early into eBay famously they they were early into Uber uh, they were early into Snap and Adam just kind of had through connections uh, in the Israeli American community been told to talk to this guy at Benchmark who was in Israel and it, like kind of connects over the phone over this like 2 hour call that that was just supposed to be a few minutes uh that guy named Michael Eisenberg he, he kind of flies out to New York not that later to meet with Adam and can like quickly tell that this is he's sort of checking the boxes for the type of founder that you look for meaning like he was just this incredibly talented salesman right up front and clearly had like extraordinary ambition and so i mean this is the type of stuff that vcs look at they're like well this is what jeff bezos was like and this is what steve jobs was like so they sort of look for that pheno those phenotypes in a founder and so adam had all that and like you know pretty clearly wore off as, as one of the better salesmen this guy had ever met um, and then he sort of brings in the, the rest of the benchmark crew and they come to the same conclusion. I think they also did, mm. uh, to our surprise, like the business. At that time, the business was actually profitable, which is very rare for a tech business. Uh, You're now, telling me that a WeWork was once a good business? In, in its <laughs> right. It, 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 this was surprising to us, too. We, you know, At least based on their own numbers, there was one year they were profitable. It made, like I think, $1.4 million, and it was 2012. <laughs> um, and then they went on to lose more than most any startup in history. Uh, <laughs> a combined $11 billion. He can't win them all. <laughs> <laughs> so they like that this business, they sort of look at it as a tech business just simply because they're used to looking at tech businesses, and they're like, well, it's making these 35% margins mm. for profit and like companies, it's already profitable. It's sort of not really seeing that like, well, it turns out it's it's real estate and most real estate's profitable. That's why buildings exist. Like you don't, <laughs> you make money on your building. <laughs> right, 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 right. Was there early sort of positioning around, like did, was there something about Adam that maybe, did he connect, oh, tech is, because we talk about 
you know, as reporters, we talk a lot about like tech multiples, right? You know, like where every every company wants to look like a tech company just because they want to be valued as a, as a tech company is. And, and it's never, you know, I mean, that's the whole point of saying we're not a real estate company. We're a, or we're not a, we're not a cab company. We're a, you know, whatever. We're a transportation or we're, a, we transport everything or some BS. Or the whatever. Amazon of transportation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. So, I mean, did he sort of get that early on? Was he just, did he home in on like, all right, we're positioning as tech or did they actually kind of believe it or was it a mix of that, you know? It seems like he just figured that out quickly. Mm. And it was it was interesting. We started hearing around the benchmark time that he was sort of glomming onto that concept. And it was around the time the social network came out. Facebook was about to go public. One of the funny things we uh, heard as we were reporting this book was that he became friendly with Sean Parker, Sean Parker of uh, one of the early Facebook backers. Um he was in New York and he had this big mansion kind of near where Adam and his wife lived at the time. So they became friendly. We heard that Adam would just pop by the house a lot. They called it the Bacchus house. <laughs> so he would oh go to God. these crazy parties at Sean Parker's house and meet all these tech entrepreneurs and just say like, wow, look at their lives. They're amazing. And we've heard that he would tell all of them, like, I, I have the physical Facebook. Like, this is what I'm building right now. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> uh, and they would laugh. They exactly would laugh at him and just sort of laughed him off. But it gave him, it sort of moved him from the world of the real estate people he knew who were connecting, who were giving him money at the beginning to realizing that like tech was where the money was and where mm. he was going to grow this big company. And there were other points, but uh, that just seemed like a kind of a critical moment. So did he make his way to... They're New York based at, at this point or basically, or did they make their way to Silicon Valley or did they know that they had to make it to Silicon Valley at least to, to get the money or uh, what sort of, what relationship with the Valley, I guess, what did they really have? I think they had opened an office or were opening an office in San Francisco. And that was like the first place to, to expand beyond New York, which I imagine like money was related to that. But yeah, his, his eyes, you know, he had raised money from these kind of New York real estate guys and other kind of random investors. But then I think just realized like well, venture capital is where this money is. And so the eyes glance that way. And then he he's very like, I mean, his emotional intelligence is just so extraordinary that he just very quickly learns what people want to hear. Mm. And so I, th I imagine it did not take him like many conversations with these VCs who often just speak in cliches and, and are caricatures of themselves to sort of figure out the right words to say and, you know, like innovative, killing it, the scale. And then money just, you say it in a row and money just drops out of a bag. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. I keep repeating these things myself on the street and it doesn't happen. <laughs> because if, if you if you sort of trace the arc of it, it, was, it started as physical Facebook, physical social network. And like the iPhone was about I, but we're about we. Uh, and, oh, okay. But then it became, uh, as Uber and Airbnb were, were ascendant, it suddenly became part of the sharing economy. And it's like, you guys lease that uh, space. Uh. If, if there's anything you can say nice about, about Uber and Airbnb, it's like their business model is actually they don't own the, the real estate or lease the real estate. They leave that to others. But but yeah, he managed to convince some very smart investors that he was part of the sharing economy. Okay. So he gets benchmarked. That's a top tier venture capital firm. That's sort of like his its own pedigree, basically, in getting backed, convinces the investors that, you know, he's the next mini Steve Jobs or whatever you want to call it. You know, at this point, they're, st they're growing, right? And to grow, that means expanding rapidly and sort of, I guess I just wonder what 
the employee ranks look like at this point? And are they also buying into this sort of vision? You know, like how did he how did he interact with these people? You know, did he have sort of sway over them or did they were they just like this guy's full of shit, but you know, whatever, I'll take a paycheck, you know? It seemed like the arc of his interactions and like the makeup of the company sort of changed as the company evolved, which I guess some of it's natural to startups, but a lot at the beginning was very much friends and family, which I think, you know, a lot of startups really are. A lot of a bunch of his friends from Israel, family members of his and his wife. Um, it all just kind of came together you know, people they knew. I mean, it started to get more, um, you know, he was plucking people from bigger and bigger roles as time went on. And I mean, he's he was incredibly successful at recruitment too, just like he was at raising money. I mean, he could convince and captivate people and would bring in very senior people that just impressed people every step of the way. I mean, his, I guess he came in as his COO and president but he was the CFO of Time Warner, this guy, Artie Minson, who became this, who stayed as the CFO till the failed IPO. And he was just seen as a, a really like senior finance person. He was able to keep on doing that. And then a lot of these people would first be in awe of him, then be very confused as how this company ran or didn't function. But then in terms of Adam's interaction with staff, I mean, he had a summer camp every summer. It was a ton of alcohol everywhere constantly, but he was very much in the mix of things. And it seems like as time went on, I mean, you start to hear stories of like, he wouldn't interact with staff. He had his own elevator, his own way out. So he just started to get more and more distant from employees and really not interact with them only in special forums. Oh, but God. people, yeah, I mean, that just seemed like it got more extreme as his... Uh, <laughs> as his ambitions and his megalomania, I guess, grew over time. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. One thing that I think about just in the in Uber reporting is like, there are people who were just like, look, I'm getting a paycheck. And then there were people with this sort of like slavish devotion to Travis. And, and particularly because of the hustle culture and the willingness to go down or to really support a, an idea and a dream and a vision. And I guess I just wondered, did Adam have that same sort of appeal or pull over people as well? You know, my sense from, from, you know, briefly covering Uber and, and, and largely reading your book was Travis was able to get a little more of a, a caliber person to really believe in, in him. I think Adam got people to believe in the vision of WeWork. Like, I think he really did convince people that, this is not an office space company. This what you're doing is bringing people together and you are making the world a better place like he and but I think the other thing he did, which is more to why they were, were so into the company is like whenever someone would come in um, and he was hiring them, he would almost without fail, like take out a piece of paper and be like, here's the equity we're going to give you. Here's what it's going to be worth when we're a five billion dollar company. Here's what it's going to be worth when we're a 10 billion dollar company and sort of just get you to, to train your eyes on those dollar signs in the future. 
Um, so I, I think that was definitely part of the, uh, you know, where people's minds went and why they were so defensive about WeWork. <laughs> so, hey, hey, hey. Well, so, and that's sort of, you know, we, keep, we talk about the founder a lot. I keep sort of circling back to the founder. But one of the things that eventually comes into play later is a lot of this comes back down to sort of shareholder control, who holds what power, um, who sort of like has tightened their grip on things and the willingness of investors to kind of give that power over to founders a lot of the time, you know? And so I'll let you sort of talk about that, but I guess I just wonder how much power should these founders be given in terms of of their companies, in terms of how the shares are sort of structured, in terms of what power the board of directors even has over a CEO at some point, you know, like in some cases you can look at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg is there. He's there until he wants to leave, right? Or you could look at Google's dual class share structure back in the day and um, Snapchat and a few others, Uber. And so I guess I just wonder, A, what WeWork's sort of shareholder you know, structure look like, and then B, maybe what went into that and did they do it the right way or not, you know? Um, well, to start up there, I mean, they did it the right way for Adam Newman to sort of get <laughs> whatever he, he wanted for the, the right company. Way. He did it the right way for himself, not necessarily for the company. But the interesting thing it was, it was against this backdrop of, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg had done it, as you said, Snapchat, Evan Spiegel had gotten like such extreme, what was it, like shareholders got no votes when they went public. <laughs> he was negotiating into this era, Adam Newman, where you know, he would push for more votes per shares than everybody else. And when there was any pushback, he was like, come on, you gave it to Travis Kalanick. Why would, why can't you give it to me? Evan Spiegel has it. I mean, we've heard in so many ways that he was very obsessed with Travis Kalanick and obsessed with really? this. Yeah. He followed Travis's playbook in terms of how he raised money all over the globe, raising more money than almost anybody else. And the founder control that gave him this, you know, control potentially forever had they gone public. The interesting thing, I think, is like he took it to the whole nother level. Travis I mean, would go out and tell potential investors, you know, I'm not taking a single dollar out of this company. I totally believe in it. You know, pay, give me money, but we're all in this together. Adam Newman followed the whole playbook, except also managed to uh, sell shares each time. So it's like taking Travis's playbook to, and then, you know, doing the next thing that was, uh, good for him personally, basically. So he took money out each, each subsequent round, basically the, to put it aside. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it was the, the series A, the series B, you know, these are the rounds of venture capital. So it was the, uh, first round, second round, third round, fourth round, fifth round, Seventh round. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Some folks might give a sort of sideways glance at a founder doing that sort of behavior, right? Essentially, it might mean, do you really believe in this company? Because you're kind of taking some insurance out for yourself if you put 10 million bucks out of this uh, round by selling, you know, by selling shares personally to the suckles or something like that. So I guess, was that at all? Did anyone sort of give a side eye to that when it was happening? It's connected with founder control. So essentially what was happening in this entire era was the norms about what is, is responsible corporate behavior were getting mm. eroded. 
Um, and so, or, or shifted. And so you go back to when Amazon went public and Jeff Bezos is the visionary founder. He didn't have control of his company. He, he still doesn't. He just owns 40% of the stock or owned. Um, then you fast forward and uh, people have sort of taken the different lessons from, from that. And so venture capitalists idolize these founders and, and talk about how important founders are as, as these mythical creatures. Uh, but then in order to, to essentially convince them to take their money, they say, well, I'll just give you full control. And so, I mean, it's just like a kind of wild thing, right? Like, I mean, these guys are raising billions of dollars, billions. And uh, like, if I were raising billions, uh, I would probably be, or how about this? If I were giving somebody billions of dollars, I would probably want like control of that company, um, especially if they, if they aren't contributing to anything other than sort of the idea. But because of the way the Silicon Valley was so competitive uh, in terms of just all the money battering down to get in there, they would give founders what they wanted. And so Adam sort of, as he always did, would get as much as he could and sort of do better at negotiating for himself than anyone else. So he got a lot of control and he got a lot of money. And, and the short answer to your question is, yes, they were concerned, but they kept giving him money, right? Like, so people would say, oh, Adam, don't do that. It's a bad idea. Uh, and at first it started like, well, maybe let's just give him a few million and it'll satisfy him. But Adam doesn't get satisfied by anything, like, right? He always wants more. He always is thinking bigger. And so 9 million wasn't enough. It needed to be 15. And then it was like 120. And then it was like 360. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. And then he borrowed against his shares another few hundred million. Then the banks, um, you know, let him pledge his shares. JP Morgan, UBS, Credit Suisse. Yeah, um, almost 500 million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. That's actually, no, that's actually my next sort of thing I was thinking about. And Maureen, particularly on your, your part of this is like, what did due diligence look like in all of this? Like, th isn't that a thing, uh, you know, in banker land? Due diligence is, all right, We before we invest in this, we're going to go look under the hood. We're going to check the numbers. This is a solid investment. We feel fine as JP Morgan investing billions of dollars or whatever into this, this company. Like, And then all of a sudden, no longer that's true or whatever. You know, like, <laughs> what does that even look like as this is happening, you know? Oh, it was that. It's a great question. And it was incredible what it looked like, which was... One example we have is Fidelity came in. One of the principals there, his name is Gavin Baker. He was one of the main investors there at the time. But he read in the paper that his main rival at T. Rowe Price, another mutual fund, had just invested in WeWork at $5 billion. And he was like, how do I not know this company? Um, we need to understand it and see if we can get into it. It turns out some other colleagues of his had done due diligence on the company, passed on it at $5 billion. They thought it was a real estate company. The numbers didn't make any sense. And about six months later, Fidelity does invest at $10 billion. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and the due diligence, again, you know, people underneath him were saying, uh, these numbers just don't make sense. Um there was due diligence and the same thing with SoftBank. We heard a lot of lower level people at SoftBank were questioning the valuation, questioning things about the company, yet it was, you know, Adam and Masa Yoshison, the CEO of SoftBank, just got together and um, Adam just managed to convince people to ignore due diligence, ignore the numbers and race ahead with an investment at higher and higher valuations. I'm glad you brought up SoftBank because I feel like SoftBank is a key 
factor in a lot of um, how the Valley has sort of uh, worked over the past five years, maybe. I don't know, maybe longer than that. But I, I just, I want to know what the role of SoftBank was maybe in inflating what WeWork was seen as or inflating that valuation or even just in the dynamics of the Valley. Do you think that they had like a really big part in it or was it Moss's particular liking to Adam or how did that sort of go down? Sure. So yeah, SoftBank and, and Masayoshi Son raised what was the, by far the world's largest private investment fund. Um, and, you know, largely from Saudi money, he, he raised uh, $100 billion, uh, which was like 30 times larger than the largest venture capital fund at the time. And so he goes looking for big fish and, and just like, where can I just throw around my billions? And one of the first places he goes that is like a, a company that can clearly absorb money is WeWork. And so I think one way to think about how kind of quick and, and reckless this all was, was is just summed up in the anecdote of how WeWork got the money. And it was a Masa is on the way to Trump Tower to meet the president-elect and stops for a 12-minute tour uh, at WeWork, where Adam, uh, you know, whisks him through the, the office and, and shows him the tech section there where they're working on new tech that doesn't really do much to their product. And uh, then he gives him four billion dollars, which is the or commits to giving him four billion dollars, which is the you know second largest U.S. startup investment ever. Wow. So um, I, like and then I guess the other quick anecdote about what sort of happened and how this this changed the trajectory of WeWork from going from crazy to far crazier was that Masa in a meeting with Adam said, tells him the story of, you know, there's uh, in a fight, who wins the, the crazy guy or the smart guy? Uh, and the answer is the crazy guy, because that's how, how, that's how you win. And so you need to be crazier. And so Adam, like by his own telling was telling people like, I always thought I was pretty crazy, but Masa says I need to be crazier. And so then he would sort of like dial things up and it, you know, they had been buying, a, they bought a wave pool company before SoftBank. But so after SoftBank comes in, he's like, maybe we should buy Sweetgreen. Maybe we should buy Lyft. Like, let's start an elementary school. And so they start an elementary school. Um, and, <laughs> and, and he starts to talk about living forever. And he, he, he wants to, you know, bring, he, he thinks WeWork should be involved in peace in the Middle East. Oh my God. So uh, <laughs> this is, SoftBank was really a, a crucial sort of just like, pouring a waterfall of gas onto a, a pretty crazy fire to begin with. Is Adam living large? Is he like trying to downplay any of this? Is he trying to be like, look, I'm a responsible focused founder and I'm spending our money wisely or, or is he not doing that? <laughs> oh, totally. He's, he's put up like for sale two of the eight homes he has. Uh, so <laughs> eight homes. <laughs> um, oh it, it became eight. I think they've actually sold Two, they put three, at least three of them up for sale. But then he bought a $40 million house in, in Miami recently. So um, why does this man own real estate when he can <laughs> share it? <laughs> he, he, yeah, one of the sort of crucial points of the story here is WeWork was a mirage as, as this country's most valuable startup. And it, it's lost over $11 billion in history. And yet Adam walked away a billionaire. And so, yeah, now I, I think he's, having negotiated a couple of times pretty successfully to get paid hundreds of millions of dollars to go away from WeWork, <laughs> uh, in addition to his stock that he owns. So he is, you know, investing in startups, trying to invest in lots of startups. Uh, he's buying apartment buildings um, and, and kind of has talked about to friends about doing something big on the future of, of living. Um, but uh, we, we don't really uh if there are specifics, we don't have them. And I think it's at this point more sort of aspirational. Got it. 
there's a part of, there's some really great stuff in the book about um, the influence that Rebecca, his wife has on, on his vision at some point, you know, and, and if we call Adam a visionary, then I think Rebecca is a seer of some kind. I'm not sure if I would be one of her followers, but I'm, I'm very curious <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about how Rebecca kind of came into this, how his partner influenced some of the plans that the company had, maybe some of the actions that they did, and um, just where Rebecca sort of fits into all of this, because she's a great, she's a great part of the book, I will say. Um, I'm glad you brought her up because I did neglect it when you're asking about the early years and early days of Adam Newman. Um, Rebecca Newman was so critical to that. They met a little before WeWork was founded. Um, mm. She had a very interesting background. She's Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin. She came from a fairly wealthy family with a lot of, uh, you know, she just had a lot of, uh, a lot available to her, so to speak. For example, she went to Cornell for undergrad. And one anecdote that shocked us was that she had a family, uh, someone who worked for her family, move out some dorm room furniture and replace it her freshman year with family furniture, (laughs) sort of uh, everyone at Cornell remembered that story uh, because no one had quite ever seen a freshman just need their own furniture. (laughs) Um, She really desperately wanted to be an actress. She went out to Hollywood afterward, after graduation and struggled to um, get into acting. But she did make all these connections in Hollywood beyond her cousin. She was very into Kabbalah, uh, the mystical... uh, Madonna. Yes, like Madonna. (laughs) She became friends with a lot of celebrities like Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore. She would go to their house every week for Kabbalah dinners where they'd learn more. So she had this network of people that she knew that Adam was, you know, very, when we talked about him coming and uh, wanting to meet celebrities when he came to New York, she had this really like amazing group of people she knew. And sort of from everything we heard, he was always wanted money. He always had grandiose ambitions, but I think she just showed him this whole new world that he hadn't quite seen before. And Ashton Kusher pops up a lot throughout for some (laughs) odd, like they were friends from the very beginning. They met, he met him right away. But yeah, it seems like he, the Kabbalah even, uh, the very kind of like mystical things he would talk about. I mean, he pulled language directly from Kabbalah. And I mean, one of the very famous things about WeWork now or ridiculous things was when they wrote their IPO prospectus, uh, the regulatory documents to go public, that one of the things they said was to elevate the world's consciousness. That was such a good day when that hit the internet. It was so much fun. I was like in the middle of book stuff, but like someone from Uber texted me, they were like, you have to go read it. The WeWork IPO perspective. It was the most insane shit I've ever seen. How does that get out the door? How do bankers let someone print that? I think that's like one of the crazy things about the whole story where this is, it's just like a story about people's minds bending to not see reality. And so you had all of these actually smart people looking at this document that says it's dedicated to the energy of we, and then goes on to talk about how Adam is leasing properties to the company and and borrowed hundreds of millions of dollars. And the company is just this bonfire of cash. And people are like, yeah, this is a pretty good S1. You know, I I bet people (laughs) the market's going to go for it. (laughs) I mean, it really does. Like reality distortion field is the thing that keeps coming to mind. You know, they would always say that about jobs, but like, maybe it's just the, when you get someone in a room and they have that sort of natural charisma that can work. And then once everyone sort of, maybe you step out onto the stage and everyone can kind of look at it at once and maybe there's some more power in that. Or when 
folks like you two start poking holes in the um, mirage and and people start seeing it for what it really is, then then maybe it's when all comes tumbling down. And that I think you know we're we're getting towards the end, so I want to get some just hit the arc here. You know, eventually we get to a sort of peak of the fervor. Um, everything essentially falls apart. Suddenly everyone wakes up and realizes, oh my God, the emperor really has no clothes on, you know? Um, how does Adam get out of the company? Is this a voluntary move? Does he commit seppuku uh, because he wanted to? Or what What was the sort of, what was the final straw? <laughs> well, we wanted to, Elliot and I were just reminiscing about this right before um, the earlier today is uh, when we were reporting the coup, we heard there was one coming. The IPO was going to be a disaster. It had gotten postponed. It was sort of unthinkable that Adam would ever leave the company. And we started, and Elliot had written this story talking about um, just really crazy things at the company and Adam's crazy behaviors, including transporting marijuana from New York to Israel. A lot of things that really were among what pushed them to cancel the IPO or postpone it. But anyway, we heard this coup was coming, and um, I was actually in the middle. We'd been talking a lot. I was reading Super Pumped. It was awesome. And I kept on mentioning things that I had heard. And the coup was coming. We were trying to figure out. It was Benchmark leading it. And Elliot was like, you have to get to the coup chapter in Super Pumped. He's like, <laughs> finally skipped ahead and read the coup chapter because we needed to know what was going to happen that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is awesome. That is the best compliment I've ever received. Thank you. Uh, that is amazing. So um, it played out differently, but we, had, yeah, we right. had somewhat of a playbook and Benchmark was very much involved in it. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I'll let people read the book to get all the details on, on your book to get all the details on that. Yeah, I was just going to say the basic, just as like the Achilles heel of founder control, where this guy runs the whole company and, and the investors can't do anything is that you still need money to run it. And like, if you have a profitable company, then you're good. But WeWork was losing $2 for every dollar it took in. So that that's uh, not a really good long-term solution. So you need uh, to keep getting money. And so WeWork was out of money. And so then suddenly the investors had, the board had the upper hand because they were like, you can't run this company because we can't find anyone to fund it if you're at the helm. And if you leave, we can save the company and save some value of your stock. And uh, Adam is nothing if not self-interested when it comes to his personal wealth. And uh, so I think he he kind of saw that the best way for him to preserve wealth was to step aside. Uh, but even when he did that, he, he managed to negotiate a huge amount of extra money that he got himself. <laughs> it is amazing. I want to take a few audience questions right here. I have them sent to me in the chat. So I apologize. I don't have your names here, but I do have some very good questions um, from one person. It's easy to laugh at the absurdity of Adam Newman and to take pleasure in the masters of the universe getting suckered by his sales pitch. And I do laugh and take pleasure in that. <laughs> but surely WeWork's downfall must have resulted in people losing their jobs, the value of their shares. Can we talk a little bit about the dark side of this? And I agree. Like what happened to everyone else, what happened to folks who were were invested and, you know, for whatever reason, did see a real light at the end of the tunnel or maybe a great company here, people that bought into Adam's pitch, you know, how did they make out? I mean, it. I, I do think there is a huge, clearly a big dark side. And I mean, 
the employees in particular, thousands of people were laid off and they were expecting they'd work so hard. I mean, it was a wild company that you worked around the clock and there were going to be these riches, this big payoff. And I mean, I honestly, talking to those people, so I think that's sad. The loss of jobs is really sad. Um, But I also think the people who believed in his vision, it was a really inspiring one. And you talk to people. I mean, he did motivate people. And I think there was this moment until people started realizing some of the things he was doing where it was like, capitalism can be amazing. We can build these things. This is making the world a better place. They were doing really cool, potentially cool things. Mm. And to sort of watch that crumble, this younger workforce, and just watch him extract so much money. I mean, there's there's just something so deeply sad about that. In terms of investors, I mean, a lot of investors lost money. A lot are still fine. Benchmark still did quite well. You know, enough people got in at low amounts that, yeah. I mean, SoftBank was definitely the biggest loser in all of this financially. It's funny how you can get in. As long as you get in early enough, you can bet on a real stinker and still come up uh, (laughs) in the black, basically. (laughs) I like this question a lot. Um, It's hard not to read your book and wonder about how gendered the startup world is. It feels like doors fly open for attractive, charismatic, bro-y dudes, even if their ideas are totally flimsy. Do you think a female founder could have flown as high as Adam did? Uh, Never. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in, intentionally or not, the, you know, startup funding world just really looks at, at these signals for for what makes a good founder. I remember I asked an early investor in Robinhood. I was like, well, why do you do that? You know, this is one that it probably was wrong about being that skeptical about. But um, uh, I was like, what, what's all the hype about this company? Why, why is it so great? And he's like, the team, they're just amazing when I found them. I was like, well, what was amazing about them? And his answer was, they both went to Stanford. Uh, <laughs> so I think like you, you just look for these things that, you know, are going to be successful, which is why the same reason why we were talking about why these founders get control. It's like, well, they do a lot of things like Steve jobs and Steve jobs was a man. Um, so I, I think there's a huge amount of that, but a huge amount of the people who give the money are, are, are men. And then a huge amount of people at these companies, we were concluded, um, in the leadership roles are men. So yeah, I mean, I, I given a, a huge amount of this, as, as far as we can tell, is not based on sort of merit and metrics of business, but just selling. The salesmen are men. Mm, that's deeply depressing. Do you think, um, just semi-related, do you think could we work to have, have actually worked under a different leader? Like this is this is the other sort of question. And, and it got to me in the beginning when you were saying that at one point this was a profitable business. Like, was it the fact that they decided to scale wildly, you know, and pouring money? Like, this is what kind of Silicon Valley does to every, or really venture capital does to every idea, which is just, this might be a great idea. Let's fucking supercharge it by dumping a whole basket of money on it, right? Like, is there a version of this where maybe they didn't take VC or or took it more responsibly and and made it work out in the right way, you know? Like, I don't know. I mean, I think so. Maybe Ellie and I might have different answers to this. I do think, or even, you know, every step of the way, not taking quite as much, not pushing quite as far. And I mean, you also have to think, I mean, and I think we get at this a lot in the book. It's, I just keep on wondering, it's like, what if people just stood up to him along the way? Mm. You know, what if the board of directors just really held him responsible for some of the things he was doing, pushed back? What if they voted against 
they, I mean, they always, ab- they basically abdicated their duties and said, oh, we handed him over control. He is a visionary. He had an idea. He had, he was one of the few people that could scale it. But what if people push back along the way? Could this have actually been a good company and work down the road? I guess I'd just add that I always was from the beginning and continued to be confused why it took venture capital at all. I mean, the, the point of, of venture capital is you spend money to build something that you need to invest in, and then you know that, that you need a few years runway, and then you make money and huge profits later on. But this just doesn't fit that profile at all. This is like it used to be in, in the world that you had normal businesses that didn't take venture capital. They could use things like debt. And and in fact, if you look, I mean, we work today, you know, is a, a real business. They need to fill up their offices because of the pandemic. But mm. there, there's for decades, there have been others that do the exact same business model and they can be profitable. It just when you're growing at, at two times, you know, 100 percent a year and you're buying surf pool companies and jets like that's it's a good way to not be profitable. So I think and, and there's actually you know there's a longer answer but if you look back there were 20 years apart two other kind of Adam Newmans before him that did the exact same thing thought they had revolutionized something by by coming up with with this brand new idea for office space that was something bigger than it was and then both went nearly bankrupt or bankrupt and then reconstituted as real estate companies uh, and you know, are growing, you know, Regis, the biggest of them grows at a more modest rate and is profitable because it's a business that like can work. <sighs> maybe the lesson is to not grow or not expect tech multiples and maybe steady, slow growth over time is a good thing. Maybe, maybe we should all be just investing in like mutual funds at some point instead of like <laughs> VCs. Uh, thank you both. This has been super fun. I love the book. I want everyone to get it. The Cult of We. Uh, we work Adam Newman and the Great Startup Delusion. Uh, Elliot Brown and Maureen Farrell, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thanks, buddy. Would you like to hear what Elliot and Maureen think are the five biggest ideas from the cult of we? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out their book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like what we're doing, please tell your friends, in-laws, Uber driver, parole officer. And if you have a chance, leave us a review at a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. Special thanks to Elliot Brown, Maureen Farrell, and Mike Isaac. Those clips of Adam you heard at the top, They're from the brilliant documentary, We Work, or the Making and Breaking of a $47 Billion Unicorn. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.